This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm excited to be here in our noon time slot, 9 a.m. on the East Coast every Thursday morning. So as we go forward, I'll be looking forward to keeping you company on your drive to work and having you join our many conversations. For those of you who will miss hearing us live on Wednesday afternoons, you can catch us in replays and download our podcast. Podcast. Just look for Women at Work and Laura's Arrow wherever you get your podcast. iTunes, iHeartRadio, you know the drill. And if you have questions in between, especially for those of you who are listening remotely, write into Patty. She loves getting emails from you guys. It's so much better than the everyday work emails. Just, you know, drop her a note, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We really love to hear your questions and know what's on your mind. So what's on my mind today is something I've been pondering for a while, celebrity, how it's created, why we respond to it in all the different ways we do, and how it affects us kind of individually and collectively. Fortunately, I have come across just the right person to help us consider these kinds of questions and more. Sharon Marcus is the author of the fascinating book, The Drama of Celebrity. She's the Orlando Harriman Professor of English and Comparative Literature, Columbia University, where she served as the Dean of Humanities from 2014 to 2017. A noted scholar, Sharon's the recipient of Fulbright, ACLS, and Guggenheim Fellowships, and the author of Apartment Stories, City and Home in 19th Century Paris and London, and Between Women, Marriage, Desire, and Friendship in Victorian England. In 2012, Sharon co-founded Public Book, an online magazine dedicated to bringing cutting-edge scholarly ideas to a curious public, which is, I think, exactly what we're doing today. So, Sharon, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me, Laura. So, Sharon, I want to start by getting us anchored in how you define celebrity. Because I want to, as a point of departure, celebrity to me has a negative connotation. Um, it's like people who are really accomplished might be famous, but what makes a celebrity? And that may not be fair to the famous, accomplished people who are celebrities. So can you help us um, get some rules of the road for how we think about this? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, what you're referring to is how the words are used today. And I think what you're saying is very accurate. I had a lot of opportunity to talk with people about celebrity while researching and writing this book over the past decade. And in my experience, the first thing people would say when I told them I was working on celebrity was, oh, celebrities, aren't they just famous for being famous? They don't really accomplish anything. It's all buzz. Their publicists are doing all the work. They don't really have any talent. <laughs> Fame, by contrast, is, as you noted, a much more positive term. I think there are some other layers to how people use the word. I think celebrity often refers to something very contemporary. You're a celebrity now in this moment, mm. or you were a celebrity for a particular period of time in the past. It's seen as of the here and now, and also probably somewhat ephemeral. It will mm-hmm. fade. It will pass. Fame tends to be something that is conferred on people after they've died, and they continue to be well-known. So when people will talk to me, the, the key example that they'll give of the not-worthwhile celebrity, it never failed. It was always a relatively young woman who does something primarily associated with being feminine and whose main followers are themselves women. Taylor Swift, Kim Kardashian. People love to take the example of Kim Kardashian because she seemed the epitome of someone who in their eyes hadn't achieved anything. And I will say that a lot of the people making this point to me tended to be older men. And I think they they were baffled at how they even knew who she was. One man, I remember, said to me, like, she's on the news all the time. Every time I watch the news, they're talking about her. But what has she done? Well, maybe if he were a different person or talked more to his teenage daughters, he would know that she had a successful TV show for 14 seasons, which is quite an accomplishment in the world of entertainment, that she was a major entrepreneur who 
had sold clothes and cosmetics and perfume, and also that she was one of the primary people responsible for transforming the way social media gets used today. But to him, all of those things were trivial or even bad. They were things that are heard in our society. This same guy that I had a very interesting debate with, well, two young women watched us <laughs> knock the tennis ball back and forth. Um, he, the, the conversation actually started because he was talking across me to another guy around his age about soccer. And eventually they apologized for talking across me about soccer. I said, no, no, it's okay. Go ahead. You know, I know you guys like to talk about sports. And he's like, no, sports are really important. And we ended up in a big debate about how athletes deserve their fame. Ah. But, you know, women like Kim Kardashian don't deserve their celebrity. And I said to him, I think, you know, as a professor and an intellectual, you might want to examine some of the biases that are going into your judgments. And I would say that overall, while there are some real distinctions between celebrity and fame that have to do with the time horizon of them, it is definitely the case that when you talk to people, celebrity is something that has a negative connotation and is associated with women. Fame is something that has a positive connotation and is associated with men. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't male celebrities who get dismissed and that there aren't right. famous women who get venerated, but it's a very gendered distinction. To what degree is this connected to the notion that we either seek or create celebrity for ourselves and want to be in the spotlight and that that's not seen as an attractive trait in women? That's very interesting. I do think that women, both in the workplace and as celebrities, end up in a double bind mm -hmm. where we're not supposed to seek anything too aggressively. And often when I read coverage of celebrities, any hint that a woman has a strategic approach to maintaining her celebrity, to achieving her celebrity, is seen as manipulation, craft dishonest and inauthentic. You see this in how people talk about Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. I recently taught a seminar to cultural journalists, and there was an article about when Taylor Swift first developed her squad, and the article <laughs> was exposing that as an attempt on Taylor Swift's part to connect to her audience and get them to like her more. I was like, that's your big reveal? Of course, <laughs> she's a pop star. She's in the business of connecting to her audience and getting them to like her more. And the fact that she thinks about that and has a tactic or a strategy for doing that doesn't make it any less authentic. And I think often when men are described as doing those things, they're geniuses, they're so sharp, they, you know, they really have a feel for how to connect to the public. Men are not seen as being devious because they try to succeed. And I think what that really boils down to is we expect men to seek success, and we don't expect women to do that. So when women do that, we view them harshly. Mm -hmm. And we judge um, them. Yes. And, you know, at the same time, I think that there's a flip side to this, which is there's a real tendency to exaggerate the extent to which successful female celebrities are pawns in the hands of usually some man behind the scenes. So when I've been, you know, I did a Reddit Ask Me Anything several years ago, and Reddit is a very male-dominated space, and it was, a, it was a great conversation. But the questions I kept getting and the questions that rose to the height of, of reader popularity were all about Kim Kardashian just being famous for being famous when I pushed back and said, well, actually, she's quite skilled at being a celebrity. So she's not just famous for being famous. She's famous because she's good at being famous. Right. And, and she does it intentionally and strategically. Yes. What I kept hearing from Reddit participants was, no, she just hires publicists who do that. They weren't even willing to give her the credit for being able to make good hires. As we all know, any of us who've been in the workplace and been in any kind of managerial position or even just participated in a job search, hiring good people is incredibly it, difficult. It's everything, too. It's right. like nothing will be successful if you don't hire well. Right. So 
let's say, and I don't believe it for a second, but let's say Kim Kardashian has not a lot of talent at being a celebrity, is just really good at hiring publicists who made her one of the richest, best-known women in the world. Can we give her credit for that? Oh, please. I work in people analytics. People don't want to. I work with scientists who are trying to crack the code of hiring. Interesting. It's well, you to Kim Kardashian. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things I want to um, probe a little bit here is the idea of the personal brand, because this to me feels like it sits in this space that the women I know, when we talk about the need to have a personal brand or we hear people talk about their personal brand, a lot of us, me included, go, ick, I don't want to think about that. It feels inauthentic. It feels wrong. It feels cheap. And then on the other hand, I pe- hear people talk about it as important, critical to career success, and something that deserves intentional strategy. Is I think, you know, I think it's, the problem is really with the terminology and personal brand. It almost seems like a contradiction in terms. A brand <laughs> is, by definition, something kind of impersonal that you can peddle, that you can replicate, and personal seems individual, one of a kind. But this, you know, this also gets at the ways that people have been critical of celebrity because they say it turns people into commodities, something to be bought and sold. Mm-hmm. And we think of the person as having a dignity and a worth and a value that can't be quantified or monetized or condensed into an object. People are subjects and brands are objects. And so I would say the problem is is a lot with that word. And, and as anybody who knows anything about branding would say, maybe we should change the name <laughs> and not use the word per, the phrase personal brand and people might be less icked out by it. Sharon, if, that is so, I have to say thank you. You just explained the ick factor to me. <laughs> so let's look at what's really going on and get beyond the, the icky terminology. Right. I think all that is really being said when people say this is you have to find a way to stand out and you have to find a way to let people know who you are. And ideally, that does need to be authentic. I mean, what I would say I learned from working on a lot of celebrities and looking at their careers over time. And these are definitely people whose main commodity is themselves. Mm -hmm. They have a talent. It's usually expressed in their person, in their bodies in some way, because I focused a lot on artists and entertainers. So if you're a dancer, if you're an actor, if you're a singer, it's it's really physical, your your personal dance. It's who you are. And they need to distinguish themselves from other people. And the ones who succeed best did it in ways that were really true to who they were. They didn't try to be someone they weren't. I think, you know, it's a good story, the idea that celebrities have a completely fake persona that they bring out to the public to charm us. And then behind that, they're completely different. Of course, there's always going to be a difference between how we are in public and how we are in private. That's true for everyone, not just for celebrities. Right. We actually hope that's the case. There should be some personal (laughs) boundaries. Yes. And also, we behave differently with people we don't know as well. And we are on better behavior. And that's, you know, that's just part. And we are less authentic. And nobody really wants someone they've just met to start sharing every little detail about their lives or showing all the more bumpy sides of our personalities. But, you know, somebody like Sarah Bernhardt, who's the focus Mm -hmm. of my book, was a very willful, domineering, creative, eccentric person. And early on, she decided that rather than try, and she didn't look like other women of the time either who were considered beautiful and, and, you know, ideal Mm -hmm. actress types. And rather than try to mute any of that, she just exaggerated it and claimed it boldly. And so her brand was both, here I am, Sarah Bernhardt, I'm a bit of a freak, and also, here I am, Sarah Bernhardt, and I'm confident enough to be overtly different. So I think, you know, I understand how people shy away today from having to cultivate a personal brand because it's a lot of extra work. It's Indeed. Like, Look, I'm already doing my job. 
Why do I have to be on social media? Look, Why I, do I have to I, cultivate I, a certain look? I think about it all the time. One thing that is my job right now is for those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Columbia University professor Sharon Marcus, who's the author of the truly fascinating book, The Drama of Celebrity. So, Sharon, one of the things in talking about this need to put our, like, that it is, important for our careers, um, important for whether we are artists or we are business professionals, to make ourselves distinct in um, the landscape of the people we aim to serve and aim to connect with, whether it's to entertain them or work with them. Um, And in our world now, I think the other reason why it becomes so important is that we are both the person being made visible And we're the media makers. We can do that with these platforms. So we're now grappling with how to do this in our own careers. To what degree are the celebrities you're talking about, um, particularly Sarah Bernhardt, somebody who was in the driver's seat in both ways? So what is so interesting is you're pointing, you're picking up on this this point that we now have more than one job. We have to do our job, and then we also have to put ourselves out there in the world as doing our job. We have to have a LinkedIn profile. We have to do other kinds of online networking. And yes, it is extra work. In the olden days, in the 19th (laughs) century, if you wanted to succeed, and let's say not even as a celebrity, but just succeed, what you had to do instead, I think, was cultivate a lot of personal relationships. Mm -hmm. And that took an enormous amount of time and posed a lot of risks and also, frankly, was closed to most women. It was really difficult in the 19th century for women to make those kinds of connections with men who were the dominant figures in the worlds of work. Women had their own network, women who were educators, women who were nurses, women who were reformers and philanthropists. And Some of those women had connections to men, but they tended to be family members. So what we've lost is that ability to have everything really be through personal, direct interactions. But we shouldn't imagine for a second, first of all, that that doesn't continue to be important today, (laughs) and that that wasn't incredibly time-consuming and stressful. I mean, imagine if rather than just post something on LinkedIn, you had to have lunch with every single one of the people that your resume on LinkedIn is reaching and think how tiring that would be. Just to to schedule the lunches, never mind to go to them. (laughs) Exactly. And if we pick up on your point about how now we are both the media makers and the subjects of the media, that was far less true in the past and it posed a lot of challenges. So somebody like Sarah Bernhardt or somebody like Marilyn Monroe, These were figures who became internationally renowned. People could recognize them, knew their names, knew all kinds of things about them. And if they came to town or their movie came to town, rushed to see them. And that was, of course, the aim. They wanted to have successful careers, to have successful careers. They had to draw large audiences. To draw large audiences, they needed to promote name and image recognition. Sarah Bernhardt had to work through the press and the press. They were gatekeepers, and the press also was invested in not seeming like they were just the tools of celebrity. So it's almost the job of the press to provide negative press coverage of celebrities to prove their honesty, to prove they're not just pushovers. (laughs) She would, you know, of course there were other ways that Sarah Bernhardt could promote her brand besides working with journalists. She could, and by her brand I mean her performances in plays. She helped innovate in the realm of the theatrical poster. She was one of the first actors to use color posters designed by a famous artist. Mm -hmm. And those helped actually not just to make her a celebrity, but to keep her famous because they continue to be reproduced today. She agreed to be photographed at a time when photography was a very new medium and it was just becoming something that with producing images that ordinary people like you or me could just buy in a store on the street. She 
every time she visited a new city, she would pose for the local photographer so that her image would blanket the city. So she used that as a new technology, but she couldn't take a selfie. She had to work with these photographers right. and make sure that they took images of her. It's, that, it, that, there's a lot there's a lot to pro there. It sounds like it's an aspect of her genius that she figured all this out. By the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I am Laura Zauer, your host, and my guest is Columbia University professor Sharon Marcus. She is the author of The Drama of Celebrity. Um, so, Sharon, this idea of how Sarah Bernhardt figured out um, she, that she was seizing these opportunities. Was she also creating them for herself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, let me just say a little bit more about Sarah Bernhardt for listeners because she's no longer a household name. She was in her lifetime, and she was born in 1844 and died in 1923, so she had a very long lifetime. For most of her lifetime, she was considered the greatest actress in the world, and she did indeed travel the world. She would take extended tours that sometimes lasted six months, sometimes lasted as long as a year. She visited North America, South America. She traveled all over Europe. She was in parts of the Middle East, and everybody knew who she was. If you were a famous actress in Japan and you came to France, the way they would market you in France would be to say you were the Sarah Bernhardt of Japan or the Japanese Mm -hmm. Sarah Bernhardt. She and Sarah Bernhardt, was both excellent at taking advantage of opportunities to become well-known and also to define the conversation about her and made her own opportunities. So as I was saying before, one of the ways she made those opportunities was to adopt new media because new media is always more open to newcomers and to marginalized figures because new media needs content. That was as true of photography in the 1860s as it was of social media at the beginning of the, you know, in, in the first decade of the 21st century. Sarah Bernhardt also never shied away from controversy, and I think that's an interesting lesson for women at work. It's obviously more complicated if you're not your own employer, and for most of her life, Sarah Bernhardt was her own employer. But even when she worked for the French National Theater, which was had a lot of rules and really monitored how its actors behaved and was quick to fire them if they didn't behave properly, she never minded a good fight because she really understood (laughs) that there's no such thing as bad publicity. And she would protest if she thought she was being given roles that were bad for her. She would protest if she thought she wasn't given enough time to rehearse. She would protest if she thought the production wasn't good enough or her fellow actors weren't good enough. And all of this led to a lot of criticism of her, but it meant that people were talking about her. And when she got negative press coverage, she was clearly very aware of all the legal ins and outs of the press in France in her day. And she also befriended quite a few important newspaper publishers and editors who I'm sure helped her understand how she could work with the press to her advantage. So when she got negative press coverage, she would write a letter to the editor. She would protest something factual that they had said. And then she would take advantage of the fact that once she did that, they were legally obligated to publish her letter to pile on long paragraphs in which what she did was directly address the public. She would say, it is the public that I aim to please And it is you, readers, whose mercy I throw myself upon. And, of course, readers found that irresistible, and they decided, we'll judge for ourselves. Well, why don't we go see her in this play and see if it's the right role for her or the wrong role for her? So she was both um, controlling the dialogue in the press by how she responded, almost like when people are playing tennis and you think you have the advantage when you serve, it's a real skill to be able to take control over that game again uh, when you're on the receiving yeah. side. And that sounds like she was really masterful at knowing how to do that and so that she can control some of the narrative and not only control the narrative in the press, but use it to serve her bigger agenda. Yes. And she, I think what her genius was, was not only controlling the narrative, but understanding that as important as controlling the narrative was just continuing the dialogue and making that dialogue actually a three-way dialogue so that 
it was never just her arguing with the journalist about how they covered her. It was her using the journalist as a way to reach this very important third point, the public, and making the public feel like they were, and not only feel, making the public part of the debate so that she never had to rely completely on charming a journalist, arguing down a journalist, but was always using the newspaper as a conduit to a much larger public, which was really what concerned her. And also just not being phased by controversy, mm-hmm. realizing that controversy is good because it keeps people interested. And that she didn't shy away from it. Instead, she stirred it, but in a really, once again, intentional and strategic way. Absolutely. We're talking about celebrity, and I get the great honor to do that with an expert on it. Uh, Sharon Marcus, the Orlando Harriman Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, where she also served as the former Dean of Humanities. She's the author of this amazing book, The Drama of Celebrity. So, Sharon, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Right before the break, um, you were we were talking about Sarah Bernhardt, and I got a ton of questions about her. But I want to anchor on a certain point that you mentioned briefly that I think um, there's more there. We were talking about her masterful way of navigating controversy in the press and that she was both the subject of the conversation, um, but she was also driving it in what was not a two-way conversation with the media, but kind of a three-way dialogue, that there was the audience, there was the media, and there was uh, Sarah as the celebrity. Um, Is this a dynamic that is common? Talk to us more about it, because it seems like it's a tool to understand this on a bigger level. A lot of the ways that people write about and think about celebrity is often driven by just looking at one elements of celebrity culture. So a lot of what we think about celebrity is, of course, very focused on celebrities themselves. And we might ask, you know, what makes them special? Or how did they get trained? Or what was their big break? And how do they stay a star? And so in that, you know, we're really assuming that it's celebrities themselves who turn themselves into celebrities and keep themselves celebrities, just them on their own. And then there's a a big school of thought that says, no, you know, the celebrities, they're just, they're just, And really what's driving celebrity culture is a very complicated set of media people, whether it's record producers and TV producers or the people who build our apps or publicists and press, you know, people who write press releases or influencers. And it's the media that makes celebrity. And then uh, maybe more in academia, I think the idea has become very popular in the last two decades that it's the fans and the public that drive celebrity and they, they have their own communities. They even make their own art and they're really the ones who define what a celebrity is and who stays one. And I think all of these views are right, but because they're all right, each of these views is also wrong. That is, they're all <laughs> wrong in focusing on only one point in a very dynamic triangle. And what I have come to see is that what makes celebrity culture tick and what makes celebrities is the interactions of these three groups. It's the collaborations, collisions, connections between celebrities, public, and media. And that also explains to me why celebrity culture engages people so much. It's not only that celebrities are compelling to large numbers of people. Mm -hmm. That's true, but a lot of things are compelling. What is an added layer is that we know that as members of the public, we're part of the story, but we're not controlling the story. No one of these groups fully controls the story. Someone can have all the talent in the world, but if they don't work properly with the public and the media, they're not going to stay a star. And because we don't know how the story is going to turn out, we're riveted by it. It, it It is riveting, and it makes Sarah Bernhardt, who we were talking about in the first half, even that more riveting. So to anchor people who just tuned in, um, Sarah Bernhardt was extraordinary on many levels. Um, as you mentioned, she was a world-class actress, the most famous actress of her day, I, I think who made a unique contribution to theater, not to mention all of the other ways that she was really a trailblazer. Yes, she was one of the first people to be widely photographed, along with 
another woman, Queen Victoria, and a famous and a couple of famous men. Um, Abraham Lincoln was an early user of photography. So was Frederick Douglass, the former slave and uh, abolitionist and fighter for African American civil rights. He was one of the most photographed people of the 19th century. So these are all people who, in their day, were called celebrities and who used photography to take control of their image and get their image in the hands of as many people as possible. Sarah Bernhardt also was someone who took enormous control over her career as an actress and her image as a celebrity. She refused roles that she didn't think challenged her or that she didn't think worked for her. And she left theater companies, even extremely prestigious security of employment positions that she felt weren't doing justice to her talent. She designed a lot of her own costumes, which is a very important way that an actor can take control over their, over their image. So she designed both a lot of her costumes on stage and was also known for how she dressed off stage. And she was never associated really closely with a single designer, which I think was interesting. How? If you look at, at a, someone like you know, Audrey Hepburn, who was known as being... Right, where the designer very, helped to craft the image. So when exactly. I was reading about this, it seemed like there were two things that were going on simultaneously. Um, and I want to see if I'm right. One is that she was being extraordinarily strategic about how she put things out herself out into the world. To, yes. to um, what and, degree, you know, though... In interviews, she would say that. She wouldn't hide that. To what degree was that a business strategy? And to what degree was that anchored in her artistry? Because it also it, there was a level at which she was working creatively in so many different domains. The well, everything yeah, from I, the what oh, go ahead. what the script was, how it was staged, who was on the stage with her, what the costumes were. Um and she was also a, a, a competent sculptress. Yes. So she began sculpting when she first became famous in France as an actor. And actually, it caused a lot of outrage. I think people thought she should you know, stay in her lane. She's an actor. Why is she doing this other art form? But she saw them as both complementary. It helped her relax when she wasn't rehearsing roles and learning new lines and new parts. And as compliment you know as as reinforcing because some of the things she was doing as a sculptor paying attention to expression and bodily postures and gestures was very related to her work as of an course. actor and she also she also painted but she was in a very artistic milieu because as an actor one of the ways she became well known was to connect herself to a lot of artists and let many of them paint and sculpt her so she use that, I think, again, it was a strategy. What was a good way to get herself in front of as many people as possible? Well, you know, she could be in the theater. People could come see her there. But, of course, it's live theater, so that's limited. But she needed to get her image out there. And she would do that by posing for photographs. But by posing for painters, she ended up in the different salons and galleries that were used to exhibit painting, which was a very big deal in her day. It was almost the equivalent of, say, being on radio today because thousands and thousands of people would go see these paintings exhibited. The other thing that she did that I think is really important and, of course, was absolutely deliberate and strategic was that as soon as she had the money to start her own theater, she did. So she earned that money when she traveled to the United States in 1880 when she was 36. She spent a year in the United States. She made an incredible amount of money because her tour was a huge success. It was probably one of the biggest theatrical successes of the 19th century in the United States. When she came back to France, she rented her own theater. And from then on, she had complete control. She so, could decide what plays to put on, what roles she would play. She picked her fellow actors. She even could decide what color velvet the Mm -hmm. in the theater would have. Yeah, she, this kind of comprehensive quality control and creative expression. There's, a, in addition to all of these ways that she was so unique in her p professional and creative milieu, 
Um, she, you know, exhibiting, performing, uh, producing side by side with men. Um, there was also a way as a woman, she was unusual, particularly in that era. Um, she and I want to talk about some of these personal qualifications and how she held on to herself and, and what happened in that um, energy, that triangular energy pattern of the celebrity, the press and the public. Um, there was that she was unbelievably skinny in a time when um, a Zoftig figure was the rage and um, she was Jewish. She she was unmarried and from what I gather, um, openly bisexual. And also born, did not have a father figure. She wasn't born in a traditional marriage either. This is considered radical in the 20th century for many people. Never mind that this was the 19th century. My head has been back in 19th century Paris um, and thinking about Sarah Bernhardt. There were two ways that I knew who Sarah Bernhardt was. One was whenever I got sick or thought I was too sick to go to school, my grandmother would accuse me of performing. Who did I think I was? Sarah Bernhardt. Um, or um, the other way that she came with me everywhere I went was that illustrator that um, Sharon was talking about was Alphonse Mucha, the famous Art Nouveau illustrator. And he did these beautiful, beautiful posters of Sarah Bernhardt for various performances. And I got one at a gallery that I worked at when I was in high school, framed it, and it was on the hall, my walls in college um, and when I first got out of school. So, you know, Sarah Bernhardt was, you know, her long inspiring form was shining over me for all those years. And it's interesting to see that it was such a conscious and powerful function all the way back then. Um, by the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, we are on 132. And for those of you who used to listen to us on Wednesdays at 4, you can now catch us on Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. So Sharon, you know, this way that she was so different, um, all of that she was an outsider. She fell in multiple categories of other and owned it with power, almost like the Lizzo of her age. How did she do yes. that? Yes. Well, Lizzo is a great example because Lizzo also doesn't have a body that is considered the sort of normative, beautiful body of our moment. And Lizzo comes out and says, I'm beautiful. I'm great. I'm amazing. And, you know, she is. Yeah. And, and she's it, also... Right. Artistic, accomplished in multiple domains, beautiful. Right. Plays the flute, can sing, has an amazing grasp of contemporary, you know, what makes a great contemporary pop song, but there's something about it that also feels kind of, you know, classical, especially when she breaks out that flute. So Sarah Bernhardt, I think, has the power, you know, there's a power to being an outsider because when you really aren't, naturally pleasing to the powers that be, you learn to rely on your own strengths and talents, and you learn not to be safe when people disapprove of you. So as you said, Sarah Bernhardt grew up with a mother who was a courtesan. She never knew who her father was. She had a son herself very early in life, not married, and no one ever knew who the father of her son was. She gave her son her own last name at a time when Nobody did that. There were plenty of women who had children outside of wedlock, but the ones who did that openly, other actresses who did that, tended to give their children the name of the father, even if they weren't married to them. I think the most striking thing about Sarah Bernhardt in looking at her full career was that she was very briefly married to a much younger man. The marriage lasted for about two years, but she was never, ever, ever associated with a man who was more famous than she was, or who was seen as really being in charge of her career. A lot of famous, Ellen Terry is a good example in England, very famous actress, much admired, really in the shadow of her collaborator, Henry Irving, who was the director of the theater that they worked in. And nobody would say, oh, Ellen Terry owed everything to Henry Irving. But when they talk about Ellen Terry, it's always Ellen Terry, Henry Irving. When they talk about Sarah Bernhardt, you have to be a real theater nerd to know who the men she acted with were, even though she was in some very popular pairings. And because she owned her own theater, she was the director. She was the producer. She had an agent who helped her go to the United States and do her tour of the United States, but nobody thought that he was completely running the show. They thought that they were working together and that he had had the canniness to pick someone who was herself a genius at self-promotion. 
And as you said before, she did not look like a beautiful woman who paraded on stage playing romantic leads was supposed to look. She had really frizzy, curly hair, which was not popular at the time. She had features that at the time many people, Jewish and anti-Semitic, perceived as too Jewish, quote-unquote. She was, as you said, incredibly thin at a time when women were supposed to be kind of plush and curvy. Mm -hmm. And she was mocked relentlessly for it. And she just didn't care. She just carried on. In fact, one thing she did, and a newspaper reported this, when she was mocked for having arms that were too thin, she wore dresses that had really tight sleeves to accentuate how skinny her arms were. She was defiant. She right. Said, like, that's the Lizzo thing that's care. so amazing. It's that it's like and, she was owning it and so comfortable in her own skin. And I think that this is something that, um, at least superficially, men were often encouraged to do. Oh, to be a man is, you know, to stand on your own two feet and be your own person. Now, in practice, it's a lot more complicated. I think men demand enormous amounts of conformity and deference from one another. But it's part of the aura of masculinity that you would be an independent soul who fought for yourself. Not so much for women. That's not really so valued <laughs> in women. Women are criticized for being too deferential, but they're harshly criticized even more for not towing the line. And when a woman comes out and says, you know what, like, I don't care. Here I am. I'm, in my, I'm super skinny. I'm wearing my tight sleeves, and I'm going to be an extremely erotic presence in this romantic play. People kind of cheer because secretly we all want to be liberated from the need to please and the need to tamp down who we are to fit in. There's a, a number of ways here that this is um, kind of blowing my mind because it's so different than the norms we see in the press today. It, she, she, she would be as extraordinary today as she was then. And that one of them is that she did not – somehow she managed to sustain the admiration of women and men while defining all of these norms – and it's something that we see today where when women, there's this challenge that women face. How, how much discussion was there about Hillary's hair? Um, and how much of that is about her, that she was so radical that she just broke every norm or that she was so authentic and true to herself? Well, both of those are factors. But I would say that even more crucial to her popularity her defiance and her eccentricity was that it was a different era and the majority of women were so I'm going to just say oppressed you know women at this time couldn't get a divorce on the same grounds as men could mm -hmm. women were barred from most of the professions only in the 1860s and 70s do we begin to see the beginnings of higher education for women. So women were deprived of the ability to earn university degrees. Women who were married to men who had enough money, so women of the middle class, were really expected not to work outside the home and were prevented from doing so. There were very few jobs for them. If women were unmarried, they were forced to find some kind of work, but that was seen as as a tragedy almost. Mm -hmm. So in a setting like this, where most men in the middle class know that their wives, their daughters, their sisters, even their mothers are pretty much under their control, because let's face it, if you don't have an independent way of earning your own living, you're dependent on the people mm -hmm. who give you money. Right. They weren't threatened by Sarah Bernhard. They were amused. Oh, here's especially especially outside France. You know, you're an Englishman, you're a man in the United States. Here comes this exotic French woman who's so independent, so talented, a genius. Also, nobody really thought Sarah Bernhardt as being like other women. She, she presented <laughs> herself as unique and unlike anybody else. And it was sort of true. So they weren't threatened. They didn't think, oh, now my wife is going to try this. Right. It wasn't Friday. She was running around. Saying, I want votes for women. I want all women to be defiant. I want all women to be free. She was saying, I'm free. Right. She 
was free. And she like she's a superhero. In case you just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Columbia University professor and author Sharon Marcus, who has just shared with us the drama of celebrity. Highly recommended, by the way. So in this way, I, I love how you're bringing us to this understanding of her uniqueness was so extreme that it wasn't threatening because it was she was almost otherworldly. Yes. I mean, look, let's I think a good comparison point would be Madonna at the heyday of her fame in the 80s and 90s. Madonna got a lot of people upset. Now it's a little hard to remember, but you know, <laughs> I'm 53, so I remember when I do too. became famous. And, you know, young, a lot of young women loved her because here was someone who was at a time when feminism had maybe suggested we shouldn't be too sexual. We shouldn't objectify yourself. Here was a woman who is going around in various states of undress, clearly really into her sexuality and her body, very into being pretty and incredibly willful, stubborn, determined, confident. None of her sexualization seemed to be contributing to her seeming undermined or less powerful. So here is a woman who was saying, I'm sexy. That's the source of my power. And women loved it. Gay men loved it. Mm-hmm. I don't know too many straight men who loved Madonna. <laughs> not at the time. You know? And that's because everyone was, everyone who liked Madonna was imitating Madonna. I mean, sometimes it was just hair and eyeliner and a lace glove. But I think it was more widespread than that. I think there was a real sense of Madonna is modeling something that we can adopt in our own lives. And that's... That makes people nervous. Well, it does, especially when, um, as you were saying before, Sarah Bernhardt never had a male figure who overshadowed her, who got the attention or was seen as more important. She was in the driver's seat of her life, much like Madonna is in and has been all along. One yes, of the things I mean, that... I, yes, I think it's interesting because someone like Madonna could get together with Warren Beatty, a much older man, an established Hollywood star. And I think... She used her relationship with him to put herself into a slightly higher stratum of celebrity. But if you watch, you know, Truth or Dare yes. documentary, or even just remember at the time, even when she was in a movie with him, there was never the sense that Warren Beatty was driving that. I think the only person that that it came across that maybe Madonna wasn't fully in control of her relationship with Sean Penn. Right. And it was interesting because Warren Beatty was known, he had this reputation as a Lothario, um, mm-hmm. and it, as if he had the power, you know, Annette Benning landed him um, as if these women didn't have agency. And that right. Madonna, um, it was so compelling because here was this kind of radical voice who seemed to be in the driver's seat in a place where doing things on every realm that other women couldn't do or hadn't done before. Yes. And Sarah Bernhardt was very similar. I mean, she was, you know, I think what today we would probably call pansexual. She was someone who had a lot of affairs and a lot of sexual relationships, but the press rarely talked about them because, there was a lot of protection of people's privacy, especially mm. in France. And I think that she kept them a bit on the down low. She didn't parade herself publicly with these men or women. She had a female lover who was her a constant presence in her life until her death, who was there with her and her son and her daughter-in-law and granddaughters when she died. And I think both of them had a primary commitment to each other, but a lot of adventures on the side. But nobody defines people thought it's very interesting to me because people saw Sarah Bernhardt as very sexual and erotic and sexy, but they never defined her by her sexual relationships. She managed to really finesse that problem in a way that is extraordinary. So one of the things that I'm picking up on here, and and you refer to this in different places in the book, that while Sarah Bernhardt embodied a lot of the attributes that as feminists we seek to embody, we want young women to learn to embody, she didn't define herself that way. She never called herself a feminist in a direct, overt way. She did not ally herself with feminist reformers. She was very back and forth on the issue of women in the vote. There were times when she said women should not have the vote. Women should not be involved in politics. What makes a woman beautiful is to be part of the feminine world. And there were other times when she 
was more positive about the possibility of women getting the vote. She certainly was a big uh, role model, well, not role model, but an idol, really, for suffragists. So there were points when suffragists in the United States greeted her, Bernhardt, when she disembarked at a harbor. But he held back from being really identified with the actual feminist movement. So it wasn't these things weren't politically driven on her part. They were extensions and expressions of who she wanted to be in the world and how she took control over her own life. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Another less positive way, and though I admire Sarah <laughs> Bernhardt a lot, she wasn't perfect, is that she was really in it for herself. She didn't really, and she, she also probably didn't see herself as like other women, I think, for justifiable reasons. I think that even though she was, she made a lot of statements about being very invested in femininity for herself and for other women, she was someone who performed on stage many times in male roles, wearing male clothes. And she was someone who hadn't followed any of the rules that other women follow. Then maybe she felt like, look, I could do this. I'm an unusual person. This is true. She was an unusually gifted and determined person. Very few women of any historical period had the drive and courage and canniness that Sarah Bernhardt had, let alone the talent. Yes. And maybe it was just an accurate assessment on her part, but just because this works for me, I can't really say it's going to work for the majority of women. And and that may have led her to underestimate the majority of women. She may have exaggerated the difference between herself and ordinary women. That may very well be, but certainly she didn't underestimate herself. And Sharon, I didn't underestimate you. It has been such a treat to talk with you about all of this. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. If people want to find you, where can they look for you, Sharon? I have a faculty profile up at Columbia University, so you can just search for Sharon Marcus, comma, Columbia University, and you will find me. Sharon, thank you so much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.